Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and this is the Nerdette Book Club. It's just like a regular book club, except sometimes the author stops by. It is the month of November, and our selection is C. Pam Zhang's second novel, Land of Milk and Honey. It takes place in an alarmingly conceivable future where the world is on the brink of ecological collapse. There's a smog that's enveloping the earth, which means hardly any crops can grow, and our narrator is a chef whose name we never learn. Straddled with inherited debt and locked out of the United States, she takes a mysterious job as a chef for an elite research community in the Italian Alps that is able to grow the food she loves in labs. That's all I'm going to say about the plot for now, since this is a spoiler-free conversation, but this is a book about hunger and survival and sex and strawberries. Pam, welcome to Nerdette. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So... I, even in my own uh, past as a reporter, I've done stories about how difficult it is for people to wrap our heads around climate change. And you've taken a really simple approach here that has a lot of nuance at the same time. You're writing from the point of view of like a super fancy elite chef who does not have stuff like strawberries. And at first you're kind of like, well, who cares? This is like super, you know, this is, you're talking about meals at restaurants that most people could have never afforded anyway. But then again, we do need to be considering the very real possibility of not having access to stuff like strawberries. Yeah. I think that food was really a powerful way into climate change and sort of the individual costs of climate change as well. Mm -hmm. I've been told by some readers that this is not what they expected out of what, what is sometimes labeled a dystopian novel, meaning it doesn't feel like I'm super interested in depicting the sort of, I suppose, global scale casualties Mm. so much as focusing, really diving deep into how this impacts one person and the people that she cares about. Um, Food is interesting because simultaneously, I think of it as an art form and it is Mm. our most accessible art form. Everybody consumes it Mm. um, and can be creative with it in some way, right? And at the same time, there's this other end of the spectrum where it has become this elite commodity that is not at all about simple nourishment or sustenance, or at least not of the kind that the average person thinks of. So I thought that was just a very interesting way into sort of covering the whole range of what we can lose with climate change, Um, something very essential and something that can be an art form and that can be a form of social signaling, social capital. It is really interesting because you do end up with sort of a like, oh, shit, even the rich people are fucked in this situation. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. This book is so evocative, I think, especially around descriptions of food and how grim everything is to eat, especially early on. I mean, everything is made out of mung bean flour and the chef uses the phrase, the flavor of gray, (laughs) which I was just (laughs) like, oh, my God, I can picture it so perfectly. 
Yeah, um, the mung bean flower was pretty directly inspired by Soylent, um, which, <laughs> you know, it comes from that old sci-fi movie, but now has been in a sort of delightful turn of modern capitalism, um, turned into a highly sought after commodity in tech circles in San Francisco. It's a meal replacement that I think I've been told it tastes a little little bit like oatmeal. Um, <laughs> Can't really verify myself. Um, and it's it's this like fascinating look at what could happen if we start to see food and the pleasures it can bring as purely fuel, as purely eff efficiency, right? If we mm -hmm. all were drinking soylent, we would survive. Um, we would be able to walk around and have the energy to go about our days. But sort of like it brings up this larger rhetorical question of what is the point of life without moments of pleasure and frivolity and art. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. And it's one that you're reckoning with a lot in this book. I mean, I think uh, one of the big themes of this novel is that idea of the balance, like figuring out the balance of still trying to live life when everything seems like it's on fire. Yeah, yeah. And it was certainly a very personal question when I was writing this book. You know, I began Land of Milk and Honey in early 2021. So mm deep pandemic, um, you know, still very isolated, very disconnected from my communities, really feeling, as I think a lot of people were feeling that I had kind of become this anxious brain in a jar mm. um, within, you know, my couple, maybe thousand feet of square footage, uh, just rattling around, no real connection to anything, but able to access news of all that was bad in the world. And it was interesting how this information overload caused me to become, I want to say maybe impatient, certainly annoyed with my own body and its desires, right? Like I had very human desires to go out and, you know, hang out in a bar or hop on a plane and travel or like visit mm -hmm. my friends. And I ended up beating myself up about um, these desires for quite a long time. And so there was this kind of turning point in the pandemic when I had to pause and ask myself, wait, I think that we all deserve more than this. It has become clear to me that over the course of, you know, a human lifetime, which covers many, many decades, mm -hmm. we all need some other kind of sustenance to keep going. And um, it's also become sort of a firmer philosophical belief of mine over my conversations with friends who are not only writers and artists, but activists, right? Mm -hmm. That in many ways, the entire point of having a real community is so that some people can step forward and do sort of like the good work. And then other people can step back for times and take periods of rest um, mm -hmm. and sort of restore themselves. And it's that kind of cycle that we need in order to keep going. That's beautiful. I mean, I think about even where we've been in the last couple of weeks with everything mm -hmm. that's happening and it's, it's so horrific. And I think you're right. It can feel really difficult, not even addressing desires, but also just needs. Right. I mean, I think about mm -hmm. my own situation in the pandemic, living alone and just not being able to hug people and how mm. desperately difficult that was, you know? Yeah. That must've been so hard. It was, it was, I mean, it was hard for everyone, you know? And did you feel at certain times that you weren't allowed to, so so to speak, complain about not hugging people when there were actually lives being lost every day? 
Oh, that's a really good question. I think I kind of felt like everyone understood that it was difficult for everyone in a variety of different ways, even when lives were not at stake. You know, I mean, I think about how difficult it would have been to raise a little kid at that time Mm. too, you know, and at least I could have done whatever I wanted more or less in the confines of my apartment on my own. You know, I think, I I don't know. I remember a friend once using the phrase trauma Olympics in the context (laughs) of like, it is not right. It's like, we can't compete on this stuff. It's awful it's difficult for everyone on different. I think all we can do is have as much empathy for each other as possible. Right. Yeah, no, I love that. And I do think that to sort of take one of the really positive effects of the pandemic was this increased sense of empathy for mm. how hard everyone's lives are in small and large and different ways. Um, and to know that every single human being you encounter is this sort of whirling universe um, with their own fears and hopes and dreams. And I really remember the first times that I was able to see friends again after vaccinations, I really had to go home and lie down again, just to be like, that is, that is humanity. Everyone is <laughs> yeah. is so much and holding so much in, in beautiful and scary ways. Mm. So yeah, that kind of reminds me of another aspect of the book that I found myself thinking about a lot. I think especially actually in connection to the Vaster Wilds, which was our October book club pick. And they're very, very, very different books. But I think there is kind of a through line between the two of them around the idea of survival and the fact that life and fighting for life and even preserving life also often does inextricably involve death and that brutality. Yeah, um, I think you're really right about that. And there's sometimes I think that we as a culture have this fear of facing death and certainly in American culture, just facing Mm -hmm. negativity in general. We sort of don't know how to coexist um, with both those extremes of, of mm-hmm. what it makes for life. Um, and I think that that inability to sort of look at the problem and acknowledge loss while still maintaining this, this motivation, this drive to go forward is really dangerous. Um, it is a theme I touch upon in Land of Milk and Honey, if we cycle back to that question of climate change, right? Mm-hmm. Um, without giving spoilers, these mm-hmm. uh, very wealthy elite colonists on this mountain are both incredibly selfish from their desire to preserve plant and animal life for themselves, but they also think of their motives as kind of selfless. They think they're doing this sort of Noah's Ark thing mm-hmm. of saving um, the world as it was. And I was interested in how this sort of desire to cling to a very nostalgic version of what we had, um, this sort of fear mm-hmm. of losing a sort of perfectly preserved snow globe version of the world actually stops them from being able to focus on what we're also gaining in this sort of strange new climate, Um, Mm. what kinds of innovations are possible and what kinds of sort of other futures might be there in the ambiguity of the moment. Oh, I love that. I also love that you mentioned Noah's Ark because this book is, I mean, even with the title, it's filled with biblical references. Mm. Um, Also throughout, there's a certain reverence. And again, to your point, like this sense of kind of surviving against all odds of choosing who goes on the Ark. But there's also very little presence of like actually God, which I thought was really interesting because there is veneration, but also absence. Hmm. Uh, No one has put it in quite those terms. It's really interesting (laughs) to me. Uh, Maybe that just goes back to my personal relationship with Christianity and with God. Um, I was briefly Christian for about four or five years of my life. Mm. 
Um, I used to live the first place that my family immigrated to was Lexington, Kentucky. And oh, I sure. joined, yeah, I joined the Bible school there in the church. And I really, really, really loved it. And I love that feeling of veneration that you get in a church where you stand in a community of people and you sort of stand up and say earnestly without any cynicism that you believe in this kind of overwhelming beauty and purpose in life. Um, that was wonderful and gorgeous. And after I lost my religion, I started looking for that sensation in other things. And I found it in literature, in certain types of literature that sort of irrespective of their label genre, managed to make you feel as if the world is this wondrous thing where you might open a door at any moment and see a whole different kind of universe that has its mm. own kind of magic. And in some cases, that feeling of magic can come from things like science, um, as it does in my novel. I think that when I watch, for example, uh, NASA launches, it gives me that feeling of, of awesomeness and hugeness and veneration. Mm, that's so gorgeous. It's funny to hear you use the word magic to describe what's happening because I agree, but it's also so deeply ominous to me throughout. Mm. <laughs> yeah, well, there's dark magic as well, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's very true. Yeah, it's funny. The word I kept thinking of was decadent in both senses of the world, like mm. both super fancy and indulgent, but also like definitely also in a state of decay. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, um, there is a sort of simultaneous luxury and grossness to the food scenes in the book. Yes, it's yes. really interesting to me to speak to individual readers and hear what they got from it, because some people say, you know, reading the book immediately made them want to be eating all the time. Some people read it and say like, that particular scene was so repugnant. I couldn't imagine <laughs> eating meat after it. Um, and I think most people, you know, sort of switch between those two poles, which is, I suppose, the effect that I was going for. Um, yeah, I was really interested in exploring all the extremes um, mm. of eating and of taste, which is such a such a primal experience. Okay, let's take a quick break. You can grab some snacks and then we'll be back with more of our conversation with Pam about Land of Milk and Honey. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. So you mentioned the meals that these people have. They eat some pretty wild food. How'd you come up with some of those dishes? I don't think I had to stretch my imag imagination that far <laughs> to come up with the meals in the book. There's some pretty wild dishes out there already being eaten. Um, so without spoiling it, you know, there's like a, a climactic scene in which mm -hmm. um, actually two climactic banquet scenes in mm -hmm. which the wealthy characters are eating sorts of unexpected and to the average reader kind of disgusting meat. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> but that's been happening for a long time, right? Um, one sure. of those dishes was inspired by this classic, uh, I want to say Icelandic dish um, of, I think it's a, a shark that you sort of like bury in the ground and let ferment or rot for a long time um, <sighs> before you pull it up and eat it. And it's considered Ooh. a great delicacy. Um, or sort of the classic example from French cuisine, which is the eating of ortolans, um, tiny songbirds that you eat whole, mm, sort of mm -hmm. skull, feet and all, and you crunch down on them and you eat them behind this napkin that you drape over your head because right. it's not supposed to be witnessed. Um, so I don't think it's that many steps uh, from what actually exists in the real world. No, you're totally right. Where are you on the adventurous eater spectrum? I think I would try almost anything once. Um, I was actually listening to an interview recently um, with a food writer who said that when she doesn't like something, it makes her curious to try it again because she sort of wants to understand what about it um, is, yeah, is pushing her away. It makes her curious. And I think I'm very much uh, in that vein as an eater. Oh, that's beautiful. It's funny because I, you know, I love curiosity. I think it's like one of the best things about humanity, but I think when it comes to the food stuff, I'm probably going to shut it down if I don't like it. But I guess maybe I should think more expansively myself too, huh? I don't know. I think there's also power in owning what you like and you don't like as long <laughs> as you sort of, no, as long as you sort of understand um, what helped build those tastes, right? Um mm. It's so interesting because as humans, we often build these incredibly complicated sort of moral structures and guidelines by which we live. And we mm -hmm. sort of talk ourselves in and out of certain stances. But when you put something on your tongue, you like it or you don't <laughs> like it, right? You, you yeah, can't you sort know. Of lie to yourself, right? Yeah. So I think that's, it's, it's very powerful to understand those qualities of yourself, as long as you maybe also think about where it came from. For example, I, for many years, could not stand cheese. Um, and it's because I grew up in a Chinese American household and mm -hmm. cheese is just really not a part of sort of traditional Han Chinese food. And mm -hmm. if you really step back and think about it, if you've never encountered cheese, barely eaten any dairy, and then someone tells you you're supposed to eat this thing that is like fermented, often funky bacteria and mold covered, yeah, like yeah. cow's no, milk. Like fair. that's awful, right? <laughs> that is disgusting. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, and now, you know what, now I love cheese. I've sort of like trained myself and taken many passes at it and come to appreciate it. But just things like that. I, I think it's perfectly reasonable for people to have their own tastes, but also to not shut off the equally valid tastes of others. Mm. I love the idea too, of like the, the kind of growing into different tastes, you know, like I feel like it was that way for me with onions. Like for a long time, mm. I was just like, no, it's fine. No, thank you. But then all of a sudden it was like, oh my God, these are so great on everything, you know? Yeah. And also to recognize that, you know, you have the capacity for change. Like we all mm. are allowed to change our minds at any given time. And that's, that's kind of a beautiful thing. Yeah, that's gorgeous. So you said something earlier about our like endlessly fascinating capitalist time. I mentioned earlier that this book is definitely alarmingly conceivable. There was a specific line in the book that I thought really spoke to me personally, and I imagine will speak to a lot of readers as well. And it's something the chef says about essentially that like so much of what our generation has been promised just disintegrated at our touch. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I just found that to be extremely resonant for some reason. Yeah, I think that 
To step back for a moment, um, in many ways, I think this novel is a Bildungsroman, a coming-of-age novel, mm. even though the protagonist is 29 years old. And I think increasingly, we live in a literary culture in which that sort of classic coming-of-age, coming to understand the world and your place of it narrative can happen to characters of any age. And it's because we no longer have um, the stability of a world that sort of changes once. <laughs> it's mm. constantly changing. It's constantly remaking itself. Certainly the world that we're in today feels radically different from the one in 2019 before the pandemic, um, which probably felt radically different from the one 25 years ago. It's not a generational change anymore. Mm -hmm. happening much more frequently than that. I think about that with tech too, that like, it's just, it's happening so fast. You know, the difference between growing up with the internet and growing up with the internet in your pocket are also mm. like drastically different situations. Oh yeah. Yeah. Just the, the rate of information coming in is too much for frankly, one human mind, which is also why I think I leaned into these sort of undercurrents of religion, but also Greek mythology, but also, you know, mm -hmm. speculative fiction in the book, because mm -hmm. it does feel like I, in order to sort of render the world and make it comprehensible from an artistic standpoint, have to reach into those kinds of genres. It's hard mm -hmm. to sort of digest the facts as pure facts. Yeah. God, that's beautiful. Well, it makes me think too, and I wish I had like gone back and actually written it down, but here we are. There's a conversation between the chef and her more or less benefactor where she more or less is, it like of, says she is not religious. And he's like, are you kidding me? You believed in the American dream. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. Again, as someone who had religion and then moved on from it, I am endlessly mm -hmm. fascinated by the kinds of faiths that different people keep. And I'm not um, knocking any of them. I really sure. wish I, I had this kind of faith in anything. When I worked in San Francisco Tech, in fact, in sort of the golden bubble of it around 2011, I saw this kind of like re religious fanaticism, this kind of evangelism around tech and sort of the mm -hmm. glories that it could bring us and the progress um, that it could help our species attain. And I see that in the realms of science. I see it in the realm of far right and far left politics. And I think it's it, it's really interesting for each of us to look at what those kinds of mythologies and narratives, whether religious or national or scientific, we cling really hard to. Mm -hmm. So that kind of reminds me also of your first book, How Much of These Hills is Gold, which is very different, but I think does speak to the mythology of the American dream in a very different, but also very resonant way. It's about a Chinese family that came to the U.S. to help build the railroad during American Western expansion, which of course was an extremely common situation, but one that we don't actually have that many books about. Yeah. I think that the through line in all of my writing, which when you look at genre, when you look at context or um, the setting, my books will probably see very different, but I'm forever interested in sort of scrabbling underneath the stories that were told are true about our world and Oof. seeing what kinds of weird extremes that people actually live under and what kinds of urgent desires people have at the margins of these stories. Oh my God, you put that so beautifully. That's amazing. I love it. So can you tell us what you're working on next? 
Ooh, okay. I'm keeping it fairly close to my chest right now. That's fair. But, um, That's fair. It's, some, it's something that I was working on based on a fellowship I had at the New York Public Library in the last oh, cool. academic year. So I've been doing a little bit of research on haute couture fashion history in sort oh of the late God. half of the 20th century. So that's all I'll say for now, but it is feeling very different and it's feeling quite sprawling. That's thrilling. It's funny because I really had no idea what you were going to say, but I don't know that you could have said anything that would have piqued my interest more. I have no <laughs> idea what that's going to be, but I can't wait. Okay, well, maybe we'll <laughs> talk about it in three to 10 years. Yes, please. <laughs> Well, Pam, thank you so much for coming on. This was so much fun to talk with you. Thank you. It's been a delight. All right, that's it for today. I hope this conversation will entice you to pick up Land of Milk and Honey. It is phenomenal. And I can't wait to hear what you think of it as well. Maybe you've even already read it. It is never too soon to send us a voicemail with your thoughts. You just record yourself on your smartphone and then email that audio file over to nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. I have already announced this, but in case you missed it, we are taking December off from book club. We're going to have a couple extra fun little tidbits for you next month anyway. So keep an ear out for those as well. And we will be announcing our January book club pick during our panel discussion of Land and Milk and Honey, which of course will come out the last Tuesday of the month. Nerdette is produced by me and Anna Bauman at WBEZ in Chicago and is part of the NPR network. And our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak. We will see you on Friday. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Macs and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.